Galatians 5, 6-15. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than the one that has been given to you. The one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it. God, we thank you that the scriptures are breathed out by God. And we thank you that as we open up the scriptures this morning, that you would speak to us powerfully by your spirit. I pray that that your truth would come to us with great power and great force, that it would go deep into our hearts and have the effect on our lives that you want it to. In Jesus' name, amen. As we were singing this morning, just uh, you satisfy my soul. Psalm 90 verse 14 came to mind where uh, the psalmist prays, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. And then it says right after that, uh, that we may rejoice all the days of our life. So when we are satisfied with the love of Christ, then we have joy. Then we have satisfaction. Then we have, then we can rejoice for the rest of our lives. I read a, a portion of a sermon by a guy named Jonathan Edwards this last week. And he said, if the saints knew the love of Christ, how deep it is for them, they would never be discouraged. Wow, never be discouraged. And so we need to be reminded of these things over and over and over again because we forget. We know these things, but then we forget and we need to be reminded of these things. Well, the book of Galatians, we're we're coming around the last corner of the book of Galatians. Galatians has been a book about the massive grace and love of God for the massively undeserving. Okay? God's love is boundless. His grace is this vast ocean. And we have been plunged into it, though we have no right in and of ourselves to it. It has been given to us as a gift of God's Grace. Paul is concerned about the ch- these churches that he had planted, that they were falling back into slavery, into the slavery of legalism. They had been brought into grace. They were enjoying the grace of God. And then some false teachers came in and said, yeah, of course you need Jesus. You need Christ, right? You need, you need what he did on the cross and what he accomplished through his resurrection, But you also need additional things. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep track of, you need to keep certain days and months and years and seasons. You need to do certain mosaic things in accordance with the Mosaic law. And 
some of these believers were getting sucked into that and, and at least in danger and maybe even falling back into slavery. So the book of Galatians is all about the gospel, gives clarity to the gospel. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul defends his apostolic ministry of the gospel. He was an eyewitness of Christ. He received this message directly from Jesus. It was not secondhand. He received it right from Christ. In chapters 2, 3, and 4, Paul gives a lengthy argument and also defends the gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ, that we are justified and made right with God through faith in Jesus alone. His work is totally sufficient. And now as we come to chapter 5, and we'll see this in chapter 6 as well, Paul wants to direct our attention to the application of the gospel. So we've seen Paul's defense of his ministry of the gospel. We've seen the, the gospel defined and defended. And now he wants to bring application to it. What are the massive implications of the gospel? And there are massive implications. And it's so important we spend time here talking about what, how does this apply to us as we leave here on Sunday morning and go home and do life with our families and get up tomorrow and go to work and all these other things because we can have right doctrine in our heads and yet miss the application of the gospel and how it's supposed to affect our lives on the ground running. So where does Paul go first in terms of application? He says, because this gospel has come to you through Christ, you are now free. The first place he goes is freedom. Freedom is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the great abolitionist of his people. He has set them free. Harriet Tubman, who was, who's, who's well known, she was a, she was an African-American slave who escaped and then she was used to, set, to see many other slaves set free in what was called the Underground Railroad. is a set of safe houses from southern plantations, either to a northern state or sometimes even to Canada. And she, was, she, she helped many, many hundreds of slaves reach freedom. She said this, I freed a thousand slaves. I could have freed a thousand more. If only they knew they were slaves. She's talking about slaves who had been in slavery for so long, that's all they knew. They didn't even understand that they were slaves. They had been breathing in the poison air of bondage for so long, the crisp mountain fresh air of freedom just seemed like an alien concept to them. Beloved, you and I need to know what Christ has set us free from. We don't want to just be abstract thoughts up here, walking out of here saying, I'm free, I'm free, I'm free, but I have no clue what what from. We need to know what we've been set free from. Christ has indeed set us free. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom Christ has set you free. It's past tense. It's for freedom that he has set you free. He has accomplished it through his finished work. It's important that we understand this and are convinced of this freedom, convinced of it to the core of our being, that it's running through our veins so that we can enjoy it. 
and so that we can be all the more vigilant to not fall back into slavery. And this is part of Paul's concern all throughout the book of Galatians and even in our verses for today. Verse 7, here's what Paul says. He says, you are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You were doing well. You were running. You were running on the path of grace. It was great. You were enjoying it. Who hindered you from, who pulled you off track? Who pulled you off course? Verse 8, Paul makes clear, it was not the Lord. This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. God who called them in grace and who calls us in grace is not the one who then pulls us off track and brings us back into slavery. Christ has freedom for you, not slavery. Christ has liberty for you, not bondage. So, for your joy, for your joy, it is for your joy, I want to just spend a few moments reminding you of what Christ, the freedom fighter, our liberator, has set us free from. And then we're going to jump into, we're going to address what we then are free for. What are we free from? And as I'm going through this, I want you just, just sit back and breathe in the air of freedom. This is for your joy. This is for your freedom. We are now free through Christ from law-keeping or rule-keeping as a means of acceptance with God. You are free from that. We are free from sin. Romans 6.14 says, um, We are no longer, uh, says, Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under the law anymore, but you're under grace. So sin is no longer your taskmaster. You are free from it. We are free from condemnation, Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. You are free from condemnation. You are free from the, from the law's curse, Galatians 3.13. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We are free from the, from the fear of death. Hebrews 10, verses 14 and 15. He has set us free. from. He has set those free who were afraid of dying and were in lifelong slavery to that fear. We are free from demonic powers. Colossians 1, 13 says he has transferred us from the, from the kingdom of darkness to, from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are free from a life of futility. Ephesians 4.17. You in Christ are free. Breathe in the air of freedom. This is what God has called you to. <clears throat> I want to give you something this morning. Have you ever thought, what am I called to as a Christian? We often think, think in terms of like my vocation or you know, where I'm supposed to live or etc. Verse 13 says this, you brothers were called to freedom. That's what you're called to as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, as someone who's connected to Jesus by faith, you are called to freedom. But what does all this freedom, what do we do with all this freedom? 
what do we do with all of it? We don't want to squelch it. We don't want to say too much freedom's bad. No, no, no. We need more freedom. But what do we do with all of this freedom? Paul's answer is very clear from our text this morning. We love. We are free to love. We're freed to love. What I want to do in the remaining time that we have is I want to draw your attention to three signposts that lead us to the land of freedom or keep us in the land of freedom, which is a land of love. The first is I want to show you that the evidence of freedom is love. That's the evidence that we have entered into freedom. Second, I want to show you that we are to use our freedom to love one another. And third, we are to guard our freedom with love. So let's jump in. Signpost number one, the evidence of freedom is love. If this freedom that we have in Christ comes through faith in Christ alone, what is the proof of this freedom that we have entered into? Paul says it's love. Verse six, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only, everyone say only, only faith working through love. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. It doesn't count for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. So some were saying in in the churches of Galatia, what counts as a sign of God's favor is circumcision. You need to be circumcised. And Paul says, no, you don't need to be circumcised. But Paul is going to send this letter to these churches and he can already foresee others saying, based on what he says in Galatians, ah, uncircumcision is what counts as a sign of favor with God. So I'm not going to get circumcised and I'm better than you. And Paul says, no, neither one of them count for anything. It's completely irrelevant circumcision or uncircumcision. All that matters is faith working through love. The evidence of saving faith, which brings us into freedom, is love. Faith working through love. And at this point, we see that the apostles, Paul and James, are totally on the same page. Right? I mean, throughout the, throughout the history of the church, some, there's been this this question, is James, is he contradicting Paul? Is Paul contradicting James when James says, you're not saved by faith alone, but by faith and works in James chapter 2. But here we see they're exactly on the same page. James' point is dead faith is no saving faith at all. And Paul here would say, amen. A dead faith that produces no works, that does not produce love, is Excuse me, a faith that does not produce love is a dead faith and is not a saving faith. The faith which justifies and saves us is not an idle faith. It's not a faith that sits around and does nothing. It is a faith that works. And Paul says works through love. There's an old saying, and I've I've seen it um, attributed to Martin Luther. I don't know if he said it. I've seen it attributed to some Puritan guy. I'm not sure who said it, but it's good and it's true. It goes like this. We are saved by faith alone. 
But the faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, right? Faith connects us with Jesus and all that he is for us. But the faith that truly saves is never alone. It's always accompanied with good works, deeds of love. And that's what Paul is saying here, that the evidence of a saving faith that brings us into freedom is love. A living faith always shows itself through a life of love. Paul says the supreme work, excuse me, that that supremely works of faith are done through love. In fact, it seems as though Paul is saying that all the work that faith does is evidently through love. Jonathan Edwards, in a sermon entitled, Love is the Sum of All Virtue, says this, Love is the life and soul of practical faith. Love is the life and soul of practical faith. But we must understand what the nature of this love is. It's not a love that naturally resides in fallen man, and it's something that we just are to summon from our inner powers. In fact, it's not a natural love at all. There is love in the world. We see it all around us. We experience it. There is the romantic love between two lovers. There is a brotherly love between friends. These are real loves experienced by Christians and non-Christians. But Paul has something else in mind here. Paul is talking about a divine love that comes down from above. It is a love that comes down from heaven. It is a covenantal love, a committed love. Probably the best Old Testament counterpart is a compound word that you see over and over again, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's often translated steadfast love. Steadfast love. It's a love that keeps loving and it keeps being committed and it's a covenantal love. It's a love that never gives up. And never stops. You know how finicky finicky we are. We need this gift of divine love. Otherwise, we're on again, off again, right? Romantic love, the heights of infatuation with a a lover, it, it comes and it goes. But a committed love, this agape love is what it is, is committed covenantal love. This is what Paul has in mind here. Lamentations 3.23 points this out, gives us a beautiful demonstration or illustration of this in the Old Testament. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And it's this love that God plants in our hearts when we are born again, born into his family as free children. He plants this in our hearts. We see it in Galatians 4, 6, not because the word love is used, but we just see this illustrated for us where Paul explains, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit fills us with this love. 
It is the, the Holy Spirit who is the primary agent that gives us this love, gives us a sense of it, a taste of it, and empowers us to pour it out to God and to others. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the animating life and power of this love. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of love. Love for God and Jesus Christ, love for others. And there's really no way to disconnect love for God and love for others. It's not like we can say, I love others, but I struggle loving God, or I love God, but I don't love others. The New Testament says, no, it doesn't work that way. It's the same source, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's this love that God has placed in us. It's not natural. It is supernatural. It is a gift of God. 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8 tells us such things as God is love. Love comes from God. And whoever loves, listen to this, has been born of God and knows God. On the other hand, the one who does not love does not know God and has not been born of God. Let's not fool ourselves. If if this love is not in us and never has been, then we have not been born of God and we don't know him. The evidence of freedom in Christ is that we enter by faith alone. We we enter into into this freedom by faith alone. The evidence that we have entered into it is love, faith working through love. The only thing that counts as an outward evidence of salvation is faith working through love. So this naturally naturally leads to signpost number two, which is this, use your freedom to love one another. The evidence of freedom is love. Use your freedom now to love one another. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Again, you were called to freedom, not to feed your selfish desires. Here's a mistake that is often made in terms of freedom. If the question arises in your mind, or maybe you've even said this, if I am free, can I do blank? Right? This usually comes out of the mouth like teenagers, you know, or in the thoughts of teenagers. If this is true, if I'm really free, can I do blank? As though wondering which transgressive boundary can be crossed now that we're free, that's to not understand freedom. Right? Furthermore, some seem to believe that this freedom is some sort of libertarian free will or freedom... You know, as long as we're not harming somebody else, we're impeded to do what we want. But Paul makes clear, he makes it totally obvious that that this is to misunderstand how freedom is to be used. The better question is, with a humble heart, how am I to use my freedom in Christ? 
And the Bible answers it for us. You are to use your freedom to serve one another through love. That's how we use our freedom. But Paul uses a bit of irony here. It's very interesting. He's affirming freedom, but then he says, get this, he says, now use your freedom to put yourself in a different kind of slavery. You're free in Christ. You are totally free in Christ. Now use your freedom to put yourself in another kind of slavery. Become a slave of one another through love. That's what he's saying. You're free from sin. You're free from self. You're free from the curse of the law. You're free from condemnation. You're free from the wrath of God. You're free from the fear of death. You're free from all of these things. Now use your freedom to become a slave of your brothers and sisters in Christ through love. The word translated in verse 13, serve, is the very same word that's translated slavery or enslaved in Galatians 4.13, I think it's verse 24. Paul says this even more clearly in 1 Corinthians 9.19, where he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all. Though I'm free from everyone, I have made myself a slave of all. Paul uses his freedom to become a slave of all men. So let me ask you a question. Are you free? And let me ask it a different way. Are you this free? Are you free to voluntarily make yourself a servant of all? Remember the story? Remember remember when the... um, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was the best. I often wonder, how did that go down? That just seems like a strange argument. But then I think, well, you know, we're, we Midwestern, we're, we're pa- kind of a passive-aggressive. We probably do that in different ways, right? Anyway, so they're arguing about who was the best and who was the greatest, and Jesus set them straight. He says, the greatest among you is a servant, If you want to be the greatest, you are to be a slave of all. Paul says, use your freedom to serve men, serve one another through love. Are you free? Are you this free? Are you free to spend yourself through love in serving one another? Tabiti Anyabwile, it's a mouthful, He's a pastor in in Washington, D.C. He says this, love turns us from our bellies to our brothers. It turns us from our bellies, our appetites, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what love does. If you are looking for God's will in your life, it's right here. It's right here. This is the will of God for you. Use your freedom in Christ. You are free in Christ. Breathe in the air of freedom and use your freedom to serve others through love. That is the calling of every Christian. You've got it. You know it now. You know your calling. You know what God's will for your life is now. It may look different for different people in different seasons. I'm thinking of mothers with 
five little kids under the age of four at home, that's going to look very different than, than an empty nester, of course. But this is your calling. Use your freedom to love. Signpost number three. So the evidence of freedom is love. We are to use our freedom to love. And signpost number three is we are to guard our freedom with love. Verses 14 and 15 says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Then he says this, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul contrasts the high and glorious command of loving others, right? Loving your neighbor as yourself with the biting and devouring nature of living according to the flesh. To live according to the flesh is to bite and devour. You may think it's just affecting you, but it's not. It's to bite and devour others. If freedom in Christ is separated from love, it does great damage. People are hurt. People are harmed greatly. And the freedom doesn't last. To use the freedom we have in Christ in order to gratify our sinful desires will simply lead to another form of slavery. All we do is move from one prison cell to another. And to take on that vibe, freedom in Christ, is in some way about me gratifying myself. Even even decorating it with spiritual language, but it's about me gratifying myself. To take on that vibe as a community, as a church, or as a group of people, is to become like a village of cannibals that bite and devour each other. The antidote to this cannibalistic spirit is love. It's love. The antidote, the, the, the inoculation we need to guard ourselves from this is love. We guard our freedom with love. We guard the freedom that Christ has given us. We enjoy it and we guard it with love. Notice, I love this, that the supremacy and beauty of love. Love, get this, love, Paul says, fulfills the whole law. It fulfills all that is on God's heart, all that God requires, everything. That's amazing. Let that sink in. To love in this way fulfills the entire law of God. The whole law summed up in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul speaks of the way or the life of love as the more excellent way in 1 Corinthians, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and then 1 Corinthians 13. And he says it's more excellent than the most amazing and high-octane gifts of the Spirit. And here's how he describes love. Listen, listen to this. Notice how different this is than biting and devouring 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. Some of the older translations says, for verse 8, love never fails. It's the very opposite of this biting and devouring and consuming one another in our desire to gratify our flesh. It guards us from biting and devouring, to be brought into, to be drawn into, not pushed, not shoved, but drawn into by the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit, drawn into this life of love. It's what guards us and protects us from this biting and devouring and guards and protects our freedom. So, so, love is the evidence that we have entered freedom through Christ. Love is, excuse me, we are to use our freedom to love and we are to guard our freedom with love. So it leads to this inevitable question, how, do, how are we doing with this? How are you doing with this? Are you free to love? Are you free to pour yourself out for others in love? Like 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8 says, are you free to give yourself to others in this kind of love? Or is there still some kind of restraint from you being allowed to do this? Well, how do we get there? How, if, if, if we're not there, how do we get there? Yesterday morning, we were sitting around the bre- at the table for breakfast, which doesn't happen as often as I'd like or like it used to, but got kids going everywhere. Um, and, and we've been reading through Luke. When we have a chance, we're all together. We've re- been reading through Luke. And we were in Luke 10. At least I think we were. That's where I opened up anyways. And I read through the, the story of the Good Samaritan. You guys know that story? There's a, lawyer, there's a lawyer that comes to Jesus and uh, he says, Master, what, or teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the law say? And this lawyer, he knew the law. So he said, well, it says you, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you answered well. Do that and you'll live. And it says, the lawyer seeking to justify himself, says, well, who's my neighbor? Wow. Isn't that searching? Every time I read that, I'm challenged. Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, well, there there was a man who's going, traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He's a Jewish man. And he fell among robbers and they beat him up and they took his stuff and they left him half naked and half dead in the ditch. 
And there was a priest who walked by and he saw the guy lying in the ditch, ditch probably moaning for help. And he crossed the other side of the road and went past. And there was a Levite that came by and he saw the guy lying in the ditch probably moaning for help. You know, he's even more desperate than when the priest came by. And the Levite passes by. And then there was a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans and Jews, they didn't like each other, right? The Jewish people mistreated the Samaritans because they saw them as half-breeds and they weren't pure. They were, they were not worthy. They were second-class citizens, and so they mistreated them. And this Samaritan, who's been mistreated by Jewish people probably his whole life, he comes by. And he sees this Jewish man lying in the ditch, half-dead, moaning and groaning, perhaps, And it says he looks on him, not with disdain, not with you deserve that, with compassion. And it says he goes over to him and he gets down and he pours oil on his wounds and he bandages up his wounds and he puts them on his animal, perhaps a donkey, and he takes him to the next town and he puts him in a hotel and he takes care of him. And then he goes to the innkeeper and says, if there's any more expense with this man, I will pay it all when I come back. And he turns to the lawyer and says, which one of these men was truly a neighbor? And the lawyer says, the man who had mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Well, this just, this only exasperates the problem, right? We, we sometimes have a love des- deficit. Here's what's amazing. Jesus practices what he, preach, what he preaches. He practiced what he preached. Think of the love of Christ for us. Think of the amazing love of Christ for us. See, the story of the Good Samaritan is not mainly, secondarily, but not mainly about you and me and how we're to love people. I believe the story of the Good Samaritan is mainly about Christ and how he has loved us. Consider this. Jesus was walking along the road and saw you lying destitute having been brutalized by sin and Satan, dead in your sins. Dead in your sins. He looked on you with compassion and came to you. He covered up the nakedness of your depravity. He bound up your wounds. He carried you to safety. And he did all of this at his own expense. 1 John 3.16 says, By this we know love. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And then, it says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. By this we know love that Christ laid his life down for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. The only way we actually can love others in this way that Paul is telling us in Galatians, 4, Galatians 5, the only way that we can is when we first have had an encounter with the love of Christ. It is when the love of Christ has become more than just this abstract thing out here. And when we have had a, an encounter with it and it has changed us. 
And this is what Jonathan Edwards was getting at when he says, if you knew the love of Christ and how deep it is and what it cost him to show you, you would never be discouraged. And I would, I would just add one more thing. You would never be depleted of the resources to love others if you knew it. And if you reminded yourself of it, because we forget. And you reminded yourself daily of the love, and you lived daily in the love of Christ. If you were dying of thirst in the Siberian forest, and then stumbled upon a flowing, teeming river, wouldn't your heart leap for joy? This isn't a trick question. It would, wouldn't it? You guys are like, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it would. You'd probably be happy. Maybe you wouldn't leave. You might be too weak to leave. But you'd be happy, right? You would run over to the river. You'd stoop down and you'd drink deeply. Well, today, the Lord would have you drink deeply of his steadfast love for you. Today, he would have you drink and be satisfied of his love. If you are thirsty for this divine love, you may drink, as Psalm 36 says, you may stoop down and drink from the river of his delights today. I love how Isaiah 55 and then at the very last chapter or either chapter 21 or 22 of Revelation says anyone who's thirsty, let him come and drink of the rivers of the water of life without paying a penny. You may come. You may come today. It is here for the taking for the Lord himself is here ready to satisfy you, ready to fill you even today ready to fill you with his divine love. God is as ready to fill you today with his divine love as floodwaters are ready to fill a low valley. He's as ready to flow with his divine love into you by his spirit today. If you want it, you may have it. He will not turn you away. If you want it, right? Whoever will may come. If you want it, you may have it. For the Lord himself has said in John 7, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Every thirsty soul may come. You don't need to wait. You don't need to wait till tomorrow. You don't need to wait until you get things figured out or get your ducks in a row. You may come today. Let's pray.